Good morning. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, wonderful to see you all. Uh, let's just pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious, that you love us, and that you know what is best for us, even when we don't. We pray that whatever I might say, you will give us grace to hear your true and living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to see you all. My name is Helen Jackson. I'm married to Tim. Uh, we came to St Barnabas for the first time 20 years ago when our children, Connor, Niall and Roisin, were five, three and one. Here they are. Um, I've got a photo now of us 20 years on. As you can tell, we're all a bit older. Things are a bit different. We've been joined by our lovely daughter-in-law, Charlie. Um, and uh, Tim and I are embracing the empty nest. That's lovely. <laughs> Over um, the last three weeks, we've been looking at the four Gs. Um, God is great, God is glorious, and God is good. Um, and those talks are all available to hear online. But today, our theme is God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. Well... It really feels like that right now, I must say. Um, there's a certain irony in my being asked to speak on this topic. Those of you who know me well will know that I can be a little bit goal-orientated, a little bit competitive. When I was preparing this talk this week, a man came to the door uh, with a parcel and he asked me to sign one of those little machines where you have to sign with your finger and it's really difficult. And uh, he said, you know, you've done the best signature I've had all day. And I was thrilled. I was like, come on, bring me another parcel. But I wondered if Anne would notice if I changed the title to God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself, but it's great when I can. <laughs> so it's fair to say I have struggled a little, but... Everyone has moments when genuinely they have to prove themselves. When you take an exam, you apply for a job, when you're trying to meet targets at work, when you're trying to help your children succeed in things. The rowers in the boat races yesterday wanted to prove that they were better than the other crews. Oh. <laughs> sorry, sorry anyone from Oxford. Um, if you play golf, um, you do want to beat the other person. And all those things can be good and life-giving opportunities for us. But what we're looking at today is not so much what we do as why we do things. It's about our motivation, what is in our hearts when we do the things that we do. As Christians, we are followers of Jesus but are we doing things because we're following Jesus, because we believe God has called us to do those things, either specifically or as part of a balanced and godly rhythm of life? Or are we doing them because in addition to or as part of following Jesus, we need to prove ourselves beyond that against some separate list of criteria? And if so, why is that? It seems to me we have three options. We can be do things because we're following our own hearts, or we're just living to the world's agenda. Or maybe we're trying to follow Jesus, 
but we feel we need to keep proving ourselves to him, to be top Christians, to show that we're on message, that we're not failing. Or the other option is that we've reached that place of rest where we can simply trust that God's holy and unconditionally for us, and that's enough. Palm Sunday is maybe a good day to look at the first of those things, living to the world's agenda. The world is a flawed and can be a fickle place. If our identity is built on worldly success, sooner or later we're going to be let down. All of the crews rowing in the boat races yesterday wanted to win, and they'll have trained relentlessly since September to achieve that, making huge sacrifices along the way. But one way and another, in each race, one crew always goes home having lost. And if our identity depends on achieving success in the world, sooner or later, we're going to fail, we're going to make a bad call, we're going to be let down. The ultimate example is Jesus himself. Today, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem and being greeted by cheering crowds shouting, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And that, that's better than your crew winning the boat race. The crowd recognized that Jesus' presence with them was a matter of cosmic significance, and they celebrated that as if everything was complete. They had won. Jesus had won. And yet people from that same community nailed him to a cross in a heartbeat. The world is fickle, and if we root our identity in worldly success... Sooner or later, that will fail us. So what about the second option? We're seeking to follow Jesus, but feel we have to prove ourselves to him, to be good followers, to earn that good follower badge. But there's no such thing as a good follower or a bad follower. We don't need to fear that we're failing because everything has been won for us. God has saved us through his grace and not because of anything we've done or we need to do in the future. That's, that's it. That is the beginning and the end of the story. I could sit down now. Maybe you'd rather I did. But being followers of Jesus, we have the gift of his unconditional and infinite love and we don't need to do anything more. We don't ever need to get out of bed again if we don't want to. God will love us the same. It's difficult to imagine us that against our experience of the world, but I did see one example that came quite close, but I need your help in demonstrating this. Could you just practice kind of wild applause? Ready? Three, two, one. <laughs> Okay, thank you. I knew I could rely on, on the band, thank you. Um, so when I raise my arm like this, that, that's the moment, all right, when you do that. Thank you. 
So our children went to a slightly eccentric primary school where there was lots of music. Um, that's not eccentric, but you did always think you might meet a unicorn in the playground. Um, but there, were lots, there was lots of music and lots of little concerts where everyone who learned an instrument had a chance to perform, even if they were absolute beginners. And uh, I went to a great many of these. It was marvellous. Um, and at one of these, the um, music teacher came out at the beginning, and he said, "If you," he said, he said, "Your job as the audience is to applaud unstintingly every child, no matter what happens." And we all thought, "Well, we're parents. That's the drill. We know that. Don't need to be told." Um, so. We, we proceeded on, and there were children that came out and they played brilliantly. There were children that played really badly. There were children that had practiced really hard. There were children who just didn't care, had done no practice, it was fine. And we applauded them all without fear or favor. And then a child came in, he must have been about seven. Um, apologies if you're here as an adult, because I can't remember who it was. Um, a child came in. And he sat down and he put his music on the stand and he held his hand out to the keys and then he took them back. And he held his hand out and he took them back. And he was so paralysed with terror that he just couldn't start. And the silence went on and on. And, and as parents, we all watched him in agony, reliving the worst moments of our school days. And in that moment of his humiliation and despair, we all just desperately loved that child as our own. Our hearts broke for him. We shared his suffering. We wanted him to know that we just didn't care if we never heard the piece. It was fine. We were sure, in fact, we would hate the piece as much as he did. We just wanted to see him restored to happiness and smiles. So after what seemed like an eternity, he and the teacher obviously agreed that he could just leave. Um, but because of where the teacher was sitting next to the piano, to start the walk of shame, the boy had to turn and face the audience. Thank you. Thank you. So he stood up and there was no signal, there was no reminder from the teacher or anything. He, we, it was such a relief. We just gave him torrents and torrents of applause and waves of love and compassion and joy that the moment was over. And, and, and after... He was released from his suffering. And, and after a rather startled pause, he actually smiled and bowed before trotting off, <laughs> completely restored to happiness. And to me, that is a, a tiny, earthly demonstration of what God's infinite grace must be like. God loves and applauds those who succeed and those who don't, those who do nothing. But God goes even further. To be like God, the audience would have had to go out into the rest of school and chase down those who'd never turned up to a music lesson, never tried to do a music lesson, those who were smoking at the back, those who hadn't managed to come to school at all because their lives were so chaotic. 
and we would shower them with our love and applause. So our efforts to prove ourselves to God in earthly terms are as meaningless as believing that our salvation depends on whether a seven-year-old plays a piece on the piano or not. When we do things just to prove ourselves, we're applying standards which don't mean anything to God. He doesn't care about them. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. So with that in mind, uh, let's look at the Bible instead of just me. Um, the passage today is um, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. I'm afraid I don't know what page it is, which is like a huge personal failing that's really bugging me, but there we go. Um, so um, there are Bibles in the bookcase at the back or on your app, and the words will come up on the screen. Um, so Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. The workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and at about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered them, he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Amen. So for a parable that is said to describe the kingdom of heaven, it does seem a bit unfair. If we look at the vineyard owner as being Jesus, it's not an attractive prospect the people who turn up late and work the least get paid first and get the same as the people who've worked the whole day. It's not surprising the people who came first are grumbling. 
I have worked as a lawyer for a very long time, and if Jesus had come to me and said, this is what I've done, and the earliest workers are complaining, I would have said, Jesus, what are you doing? This is crazy. If there are women who've worked the whole day for one denarius and men who got the same for just a few hours or the other way round, then they could bring an equal pay claim. If the earlier workers were predominantly from one gender, age, religion or ethnicity, there could be a claim for indirect discrimination under the Equality Act. In this country, employment sits in the context of a huge amount of legislation which is very properly designed to create an atmosphere and an environment which is fair and just. But we live in a world which is flawed, which is full of flawed human beings. And all the rules and good practice in the world will never fully overcome that. My considered legal opinion in the end was that the world was full of stuff and noise and it was really easy to get tangled up in it. And that's why finding new life in Jesus is such a relief. We can enjoy a life in Jesus which puts all of that in perspective. Yet the description of the kingdom of heaven seems even more unfair than our earthly lives. It violates our sense of justice. The, the workers who are there early do a deal with the landowner to work for a denarius. They make a contract. They work on terms they've set down. In the kingdom of heaven, these are the first people to come to faith, the early adopters. Some commentaries say that these are the Jews and the contract is the law. Jesus comes back later and hires more workers and agrees that to pay them whatever is right. They don't know what they're going to get, but they've got some reassurance that it's fair. Jesus comes back again and again to find workers. And the ones he finds at the end of the day are the ones no one has hired, the lost, the rejected ones. But Jesus has come back again and again to find them, to chase them down. He calls them all to work for him, seemingly without any reference to what they can bring and what he needs. He calls them all to be part of his kingdom, irrespective of their past or what they can do, as he calls us. But notice that the last workers don't make any bargain They've nothing left to bargain with because they, don't, they know they won't get any other work that day. They come and work trusting in the grace of Jesus as the landowner. And at the end of the day, they are called to be paid first because they accepted him in pure faith rather than on their own terms. But all the workers receive the same because what they receive is not wages but a gift beyond price they receive salvation through God's grace and the infinite and unconditional love of Jesus. So this is the scale of Jesus' justice. Let's say, and this is just an illustration, that the infinite and unconditional love of Jesus, represented by one denarius in the passage, is represented today by a £10 note. So I've got two people here, one is someone who's planted six churches. He's got 
three Nobel Prizes for chemistry, literature, and peace. Just generally fantastic person. And this person is a drug addict who's had to turn to crime to fund their addiction, and who stood on Mill Road last night and said, Jesus, if you are real, please help me now. So society's attitude to the Nobel Prize winner is that they're worthy. They are definitely worth the full £10. And the criminal is less valued. We see them as all kind of crumpled up like this. But as far as Jesus is concerned, they will always be worthy of his full, infinite and unconditional love. They will always be worth the full £10. And if you like, that infinite and unconditional, unchanging love is our Christian identity. We are always worth this much. We are whole and perfectly loved in the eyes of Jesus, and we cannot fail. We're not defined in any way by what we do or what happens to us. But it's in our nature to want to succeed with God on our own terms, to prove ourselves to be worth £10.50, or at least to show that other people are only worth £9. Or sometimes we struggle because, despite everything we're told, we feel we're actually only worth £7.50 because of our own failings. We feel we'll never reach the £10. But that's not the deal. We need to accept that we and everyone else is worth the £10. Because treating everyone as equally worthy is what Jesus does over and over again with prostitutes, thieves, lepers, tax collectors, people rejected by the rest of society. So having looked at the passage, we get to where we were before. Because of grace, we're okay. We don't have to get out of bed in the morning to receive God's infinite love. We're always at the 10 pounds. So that, of course, raises a rather Monty Python question. So exactly why do we get out of bed in the morning? Um, I'd like us to look briefly at Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, which I think will come up on the screen. Maybe, yes. Um, the first part reflects what we've been looking at. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But it goes on, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we accept Jesus into our hearts, as well as his unconditional love, we are all given a new plan, a new identity, irrespective of what we've done or what we do. It's not work for hire. It is a gift. God has a plan for us, which we can seek and follow. And we do that not because we have to, but because we can. We work from grace, not for grace. 
I wanted to share with you a short clip from one of the videos on the Alpha course, which finished last week. Um, the course has been, the videos for the course have been redone and redone over the years, but this testimony always is retained because it demonstrates so clearly how transformational it can be to put your life in God's hands. Thank you. Thank you. A plan to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. There he's quoting from Jeremiah 29, verse 11. What a winner of a verse. Isn't it an amazing story, though? It's a real demonstration of how God can chase us down. He wants every single one of us to come to us because he wants to save us. He wants us to be redeemed and to have the gift of his unconditional love and to enable us to work for the good of his kingdom. God's plan for Paul, the vicar in the video, used all the bad and difficult times in his life for good to help others and to help build the kingdom. It's easy to look at stories like that and think, well, they always bring out the extreme stories. My story's not going to be like that. And, and maybe it won't. But that's like saying, I've not been sinful enough to earn an exciting future. God has a good and perfect plan for you, which could be absolutely outrageous, but it will be the right plan for you. And it doesn't mean you have to become a vicar. We are followers of Jesus, sharing the goodness of God with everyone. So God needs to send us where everyone is, into every workplace, into sports clubs, into schools, Barnabas Bears, university, people's homes. Don't be constrained by your own imagination. Seek God's call in your life and see where he takes you. So from our initial 10 words, God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself, we seem to have covered a lot of ground. So what, what do we need to reflect upon? I'd like to go back just to the three questions I asked at the beginning when I was thinking about our motivation for the things we do, when we're trying to prove ourselves. Are we following our own hearts and living to the world's agenda, putting our identity in achieving the things the world values, pursuing goals not because we believe it's part of God's plan for us, but because we want to have a better CV? Or are we trying to follow Jesus, but we feel we need to prove ourselves to God, to be top Christians, to show we're doing well? We can't just relax into his mercy. We can't let go. Have we really accepted and celebrated the joy of knowing that we are loved and redeemed absolutely by Jesus with nothing more to prove? Is there self-doubt from which we need to be released? Or have we re reached a place where we can simply trust in the power and generosity of God's grace at work in our lives? And if so, are we really making ourselves fully open to God's plan for us, however outrageous that might be? Are we making the mistake of trying to set our own boundaries 
on what we think God might be asking us to do. It is important to reflect on these things, but as we come to the end of our series, let's remember that all the four topics we've looked at have ultimately been encouraging us to rest in the Lord, to trust in him. So with that in mind, I'd like to finish with another of my go-to verses from Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Amen.